Hi, everyone, and welcome to Voices on the Side with me, Leah Kim. I hope you're well. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Today is a really enlightening, beautiful conversation with Yumi Sakugawa. Yumi is a second generation Japanese Okinawan American. She is an interdisciplinary artist based in Los Angeles, and she has written several books, including Your Illustrated Guide to Becoming One with the Universe, as well as There Is No Right Way to Meditate. We had the most soul nourishing conversation that we're kind of thinking like, why can't every conversation take on the depth, the honesty, the just like realness um, of the, the one that we were able to have. And, and we kind of envisioned together a world with relationships where that's possible, where when you ask somebody how they are, there's real room for a truthful and complete answer. Maybe it's easier said than done, but I also like to believe that that is something that we are seeding on um, on this podcast and in so much of the other work that is being created through um, artists like Yumi. We start right in with her understanding of her culture, which it's really interesting. She's Japanese and she's Okinawan. And not everybody might be aware that those are actually two separate cultures. The Japanese occupied Okinawa and forced assimilation, you know, shamed the language, the indigenous language of Okinawans out to the extent where it's now on the list of languages that are in danger of disappearing completely. We, we pondered together about all the stories that we don't know from our own families, um, from our own histories, because as we both understand quite well, Asians typically don't talk about things. I mean, we are an example of that changing, right? Um, and by we, I mean you, me, and myself in this moment, but also I think Asian Americans, um, children of immigrants. Um, I know it's not just Asian people that had parents that didn't want to talk about the, the hard stuff, but I hope that we are more firmly in a place where we value storytelling, even the ones that are difficult to hold, difficult to retell. In a similar vein, Yumi shares how she came to become so vocal for a free Palestine, how she was nervous in the beginning and got a lot of pushback and how that pushback made her doubt herself, but how she ultimately landed in her truth that nobody is free until everybody is free. We talk a lot about the toxicity of capitalism and, and how, when, you know, we are all living within this system of capitalism, how do we revolutionize? One of the ways that Yumi really emphasizes is through rest and how this is particularly important for people of the global majority who have been historically oppressed who have had to work harder for the same recognition of the same pay. I love that Yumi says there's no right or wrong way to be in the liberation practice. All roles are needed. One person may express through writing. One person may express through artwork. You know, one person may express through being 
very vocal in front of certain organizations, out in protests. It does seem that Yumi does all of those things. So I, we have a lot to aspire to in watching her. But, you know, just this idea that we are all part of the same collective effort. You know, it really goes against the idea of American individualism. There's so much that we get into in our conversation. It's a bit of a long one, a little over an hour, I think, by the time this intro is added. So maybe get a cup of tea, get your walking shoes on, take us with you. Um, but I hope you will enjoy the really, really lovely Yumi Sakugawa. Officially welcome to Voices on the Side. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you today. And my mission with the podcast, which I started earlier this year, was simply to tell Asian stories. Mm -hmm. obviously because we're both Asian and, mm -hmm. you know, just seeing the discrimination that Asians as a community have had to live with in this country every, you know, our, the whole time we've been here and, um, wanting to, I just feel like storytelling brings people closer together, right? You realize we are so Absolutely. much more alike than different. So that's where my interest in holding this space started. And then over the last couple months, as we've all realized that, you know, this idea of nobody is free until everybody is free. And we can talk, like, definitely talk more about like what this idea of being free means. But mm -hmm. I'd love to start just with knowing where like where you grew up and how you, what kind of cultural identity, you know, you feel closest to. Yeah. I'm so happy to be here, Leah. I love connecting with other Asian American voices and expanding my community. So thank you for having me. So I grew up in Orange County. I'm second generation Japanese and Okinawan American. My father's side is Okinawan. My mother's side is from Japan. And it's interesting to me, the question of identity, because I would say most of my life, I describe myself as Japanese American. And it wasn't until my mid thirties, I want to say that I really started to consciously claim the identity Japanese Okinawan American mm. to honor the Okinawan side that got um, occupied by Japan in the I want to say 1800s, even though now it's a part of Japan, it had its own culture and language and identity before it was occupied by Japan and then also occupied by the U.S. after the war. So I've been delving into that a lot in the last year. Yeah, I remember learning about Okinawa in you know, just as a student, as a young student, and never really understanding that it was a separate... You know, like I, I just was like, oh, it's part of Japan. But then I right. would over the years meet people who were like, no, I'm Okinawan. And mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, you mean Japanese? And it's like, no, I'm Okinawan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and I did, definitely didn't know much about like, I, I feel like we learn about occupation when we study mm -hmm. history, when we study world history. But I feel like I, I never really understood what that meant. It sort of, cause there's right. 
so many peoples have been occupied throughout history, you know, so like so many, right? And it just almost right. feels like, oh, it's just what happens. Like I almost just accept, <laughs> accepted it mm-hmm. as like, and you know, I'm so I'm Korean American right. and mm-hmm. I'm second generation as well. And my parents were both born during the Korean War. Like literally, mm-hmm. my father was born in 1950, my mother in 1952. And like they were, you know, Japan occupied, was occupying Korea up until, you know, right around that time. And so I like loosely understood that this is part of my history. But in a, in a lot of these conversations I'm having with people who have similar immigration stories with their family, like their mm-hmm. parents being the ones that immigrated, my parents weren't sitting around be like, hey, let's talk about what it means that we come from an occupied people or, you know, especially right. Korea is still really in a state of war, right? right. Like the, mm-hmm. the war never ended and right. the country got divided. And um, this is like a huge thing. Like it's, it's huge in our cultural like story, but also I think in our bodies, I think Absolutely. like, you know, I'm like, how can my parents literally, they were in gestation in their mother's bodies during active wartime. Like, how do you not talk about that when you, you know, like as you move through life, like it's getting, that's getting repressed and stored and it's living on, I feel like within and, and necessarily in my body as trauma, right? And so, I mean, it makes sense. I feel like that I didn't know enough, but um, I fully appreciate now that Okinawa is its own. I mean, it's, it's not considered its own country now, though, right? It's considered. No, it's a it's a prefecture of Japan. Right. Mm-hmm. How many are how many prefectures of Japan are there? Are there a lot? You know, I should know this. No, no, no. Sorry. You don't know. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. No, it's not. This is the same thing, too. People ask me like, oh, well, what exactly anything to do with like you know, the, the division of North and South, like, no, I don't, I don't know a lot, but so do, is the language still preserved? Like, does your, you have family that speaks Okinawan? Unfortunately, no. So it was during the, after the annexation of Okinawa by the Japanese government, there was uh, similar to many other occupied countries, there was forced assimilation. Mm-hmm. So Japanese was it was compulsory in education, and he spoke um, the indigenous language, which is called Uchinaguchi. Yeah, you would be shamed. You would be forced to wear a sign around your wow. neck that says basically foreign dialect. It's on the, I want to say it's on the UNESCO list of languages that's on the verge of being extinct, but there are revitalization efforts, grassroots revitalization efforts to preserve the language, to teach it to a younger generation. And so I've connected through the internet uh, to various Uchinaguchi revitalization accounts. And I'm very, very slowly picking up a few words here and there. And that was a grief that I really faced for the first time when I went to Okinawa for the first time in 18 years, just a month ago, where Mm -hmm. I realized that my whole life, I grappled with the complexity of being bilingual and growing up speaking Japanese, going to Japanese Saturday school, but not 
quite being fluent enough to be considered a native, but also wanting to learn Japanese better. But also as a kid, resenting the process of learning <laughs> Japanese and hating Japanese. And then when I went to Okinawa, I realized, you know, I had this whole lifelong struggle and complex feelings around being a Japanese speaker as an American-born U.S. citizen, second generation. But I didn't even consider until well into my adulthood that, oh, there was also this whole other language, Uchinaguchi, which my grandmother spoke that mm. I don't know anything about. And that was, I think, that and other revelations I had just in this year, I really felt it somatically in my mm-hmm. body, the, the grief of not just what has been lost, but also, oh, all the years where I didn't even know that there was this loss. Mm. And I feel like that is one of the many ways that colonization occupation is violent towards the people who are occupied and colonized. Yeah. And the people who then come from the people who are occupied and colonized, right? Because you were like, you weren't even in Okinawa. Like you didn't grow up in Okinawa. You're not, you know, like you weren't physically taking in day to day, the influences of that colonization like geographically speaking, mm-hmm. but like it's in you, like it's just, right. it's in you. And then the absence of acknowledging it or processing it is also like that you're, you're saying, like you didn't even know to feel the grief about it. Right. And there's grief around that not knowing yes. mm-hmm. because it's just that like incomplete it's realizing like you were incomplete because how could you have been complete if this large part of your very identity um, was just like non-existent, like Mm -hmm. as far as in your conscious mind. And yeah, the impact is so violent. And then the, the fight to reclaim it or to reconnect to it also is it's a painful one, right? Like it's on the one hand, wonderful. You have this drive to try to get some of the language back. But in that process, there's this reckoning with like, wait, but my, I should have been able to learn this directly from my grandmother who like learned that, you know, that's a very natural thing for that to have been passed down from your grandmother Mm -hmm. to, is it your mom or your dad? That's it would Okinawa. be from my father's side, from my your father's side, grandmother. Right. Mm-hmm. So your your grandmother to your father to you. That's like a very natural passing down of um, like your the language of your people. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, with your parents from being Okinawan versus Japanese? Mm-hmm. Is there like was is there conflict from that just as being two people, not like the, not like representative of the nations necessarily, or is it something where there's just like a piece, there's always been like a piece in between them? I wouldn't be surprised if there were subconscious dynamics of a country that's occupied versus the occupier. And I mean, for example, I grew up speaking Japanese and I didn't even really know that Okinawa was its own kingdom until 
well into my adulthood. It's not like I learned it directly from my parents or from going to Japanese Saturday school. So mm. I feel like I'm sure there are subconscious. But nothing tensions. that like it didn't play out in day to day life for them. Like it wasn't like a point of like a point of conflict for them day to day. It's I would say no. Mm hmm. But then I don't know. You never know, like, um, because I'm also delving into being aware of the fact that also it's similar to how the labor migration of Koreans who came to Japan, how they were discriminated against. Also, Okinawans were discriminated against as well mm. in mainland Japan. Um, there will be signs that say, no Koreans, no Okinawans. Wow. And and so Okinawans and Koreans were sort of grouped in that same lower class um, through the eyes of Japanese culture. And so who knows? Maybe maybe there was implicit bias when my mom married an Okinawan mm. person. Uh, but I just don't know about it because also Asian families tend to not talk about we don't things, talk about stuff I'm nope. sure there's things I just don't know about it yeah yeah well that's telling too though because that means the culture but I think I think Asian culture at large puts this on people where it's like you don't talk about things that are heavy difficult will cause conflict right. you know you just sort of and I think especially um the immigrant mindset like people who immigrate to the west is to leave that behind and to start anew right to have right. this this like chance to live a more open life or more opportunities and all these things that i imagine all both of our parents would have thought when they wanted to like come here and have their family here so is this i know you posted about the shimanchu lineage is that your okinawan <laughs> You've yes. like mm -hmm. the specific lineage within on your dad's side. So your Okinawan side. So how are, did you like, what did your parents help you with this trip back? Were they part of it? Like, or was it something that you felt really called to take on yourself? So the reason why I went to Okinawa this past November was because in 2020, our Okinawan side of the family, we were supposed to commemorate the seven-year anniversary of my grandmother's death. And, but then COVID mm. kept happening. So it got delayed two years. So this was the year when it finally seemed safe enough for everybody to gather. And so it was a pretty big reunion on my father's side. So my aunt and cousin from Orange County also made a trip all the way from Southern California to Okinawa. And also I had cousins who started their adult lives in mainland Japan. They also came down to Okinawa for this gathering. And so it, it, it was a family thing, but also I think separately, I've been wanting to revisit my Okinawan roots. So it was a perfect accumulation of different threads happening at once and I think also the trip to Okinawa it was also happening 
during this uh, current ongoing mm. genocide. So while I'm learning about the Battle of Okinawa and how one third of the population was killed due to the U.S. invasion, um, the only U.S. invasion on Japanese soil during World War II, as well mm. as the Japanese military army instructing Okinawans to basically commit suicide uh, mm -hmm. to avoid being captured by U.S. soldiers. And while all of this is happening, I'm also on my Instagram seeing all the horrible images and footage from Gaza. And so I think it was a really vital lesson for me, I think, to really hold the violence of the past and how that is echoed in the violence that's happening right now and to be able to make those connections and in being aware of those connections to be part of a movement to dismantle those systems. It's the idea of, you know, that there's a saying of history repeats itself, right? History is just like at the same thing happening over and over again, but kind of attempting to masquerade as something different and, in certain situations, many of us were able to stay unaware or ignorant or asleep or whatever. Um, but there's definitely been something, I, I mean, a big part is social media, right? And the powers that be not having been able to block the transfer of information on social media, you know, they are now like it's so much is being mm -hmm. censored um, and shadow banned and everything now. But like right from the beginning, we're all just like, what is, you know, what is this? And we had never seen that before. I actually read, um, I don't know if you ever read the Washington Post, but a, maybe like a month ago now, there was a piece questioning our U.S. media's choice to never air footage after a mass shooting, there was this piece about like when when you don't actually see the horrific images, you know, and instead they just show you the outside of the school or like they right. often show you the the shooter, you know, you like you and mm -hmm. they in that weird way, like they're like, OK, they put a human face to the shooter. But and then you see the happy images of like let's use a school shooting, like the children who were killed, they show mm -hmm. their like happy pictures with their family or whatever, but they never actually show what happened inside, right? Like, because that would be right. so horrific for everybody. But this, the, this piece in the article was saying like, if people saw how horrific it was, the the like what happens to human bodies, to children's bodies in these shootings, there would be more movement in our country when it comes to gun violence. And this article, it showed a little bit more, but it still didn't show anything because there's a question also of like protecting families and protecting the dignity of the right. children. And like, yeah, that mm -hmm. all makes sense. But I think what we've been seeing happening in Gaza is like you we've been seeing those images that normally we are like that that's normally out, kept out of our awareness as the American public. Right. The media just doesn't really show that mm -hmm. stuff. And when you see it, you're actually finally seeing the whole picture of like what war does. You know, you can no longer right. just conceptually, theoretically talk about why war is necessary and this rhetoric of, 
of course there's civilian loss in war. It just happens, you know, like people say that. And yeah. we've always said that through the years and even going back and studying the Korean war and the sheer numbers of lives lost. And you just like, Oh man, this, Oh man, that many million people died. Like that's terrible. But there's like, that's just like a logical taking in information. And it's not like going into our heart and soul or gut as humans of knowing like, this is not okay. Just seeing things on social media. And then I think those of us that have some kind of connection to being oppressed, whether it is because we come from oppressed, it could be personal within your own family or like being from occupied, like having connection to occupied Okinawa and then wasn't even just occupied. It was like lost, right? It was just absorbed into the occupier. And just like when you are seeing out in the world stuff that is like part of your the very fabric of who you are, you know, it's like this, it's so clear, right? It feels so clear that when, when you see something and you're like, this is wrong. Right. And just like, and then finding your voice within that to be like, well, how am I going to, like you mentioned, like joining the movement, joining this movement for liberation. And how was that process for you? Like, did you have, I mean, did it just feel really clear how you were going to contribute and how you were going to kind of add your voice to what's happening? Like it feel, I don't know. I mean, it's even as you know, when something is the right thing, when you're going against everything you've been fed, it's hard, right? Yes. I will say I really questioned myself when, when I slowly started to become pretty adamantly at this point now pro-Palestine. I wasn't as educated about everything that's happening in Gaza and Israel before October 7th, I think I had an inkling of, of sort of the alternative narratives not popped up by U.S. media before. But for whatever reason, something about this particular genocide and violence, um, I don't know, for whatever reason, I just really had an inner knowing to really pay attention to it. And also... When, at least in Los Angeles, when there was a scheduled protest and march in front of the Israeli embassy in Westwood, I felt really called to go to it. And I remember that it was, I think, shortly after the solar new moon eclipse in Libra. So it felt also astrologically appropriate. And it was hard for me to to voice my support for Palestine and to post content that amplify Palestinian voices, I definitely got a lot of pushback. And I did find myself doubting because I think the Western media and the U.S. empire, I think we are constantly gaslit every second of our lives. And so... I did go through a period of really doubting myself and I think ultimately gaslighting myself 
as an extension of the gaslighting that's happening structurally everywhere where I would be like, oh my gosh, what if (laughs) I and all of these very educated activist friends are wrong somehow? (laughs) And but then that was just an invitation for me to learn more and which which is still happening. It's not easy to to take a stand knowing that it is going to upset and anger a wide faction of the population and to be willing to experience pushback and also yeah to be challenged every step of the way. Yeah, and I think Asians or any, you know, non-white group, we have seen and lived, you know, like every moment here, knowing that we are not valued in the same way and that our lives systemically are not worth the same, you know, and our voices are not worth the same. So I think that, and, and combine that for Asians in particular with what we talked about earlier and this culture of like not talking about things, right. That are really important and are like not even important, but anything a little bit like contentious, like, Oh, just sweep it under the rug. We're not going to talk about that in our family. So I think that combined with knowing that we, as a as like a a racial group are not as protected in this country. Um, That's part of the gaslighting too. That's like part of the fear mongering to like, keep us just like quiet, you know, like it's, and to, for those of us that are, have been, you know, more vocal against what, the mainstream and what the media wants us to think, like, of course, it's going to be scary because we've been conditioned to not even try to do that. Or if you do try to do it only in like a really like um, superficial way of, you know, when right. seeing there's something about, you know, the last few years, we're seeing a lot more Asian presence in media, like in movies and um, all these things. And I'm, I'm so happy about that. And so it makes me feel proud because it's like, if Michelle Yeoh can get an Oscar and be recognized, that means that people that look like her, like are also have a chance at being recognized and valued, but there's something that has felt it is a superficial, shallow thing to have that kind of recognition. Um, and yeah, like I would see just even in the last few years with like there being more talk about there needing to be more diversity and equity right across all industries. And everyone's aware of this now, like everyone's like, oh, yeah, of course, we need more diversity. But oh, yeah, this feeling of it's not going deep enough to any of the root issues. It's right. almost like, oh, just put just put Simu Lu as a Ken in the Barbie movie and everything's cool. You know, racism is solved. (laughs) Like, um, so I think that's where so many of us that care about all this and can no longer accept that the way things have been, you know, are just like facing our fear and, and speaking up. Um, and you say you meant, I think, I feel like you talk about this a lot, but this need for support, right. For like us to have support 
while doing this work and mm -hmm. um the rest like there's one I really needed to see at that time um you wrote something about rest and the importance of that like it's hard though when when it's like there's so much to be done there's so much suffering in the world like how can I what do I need support for like what do I I I shouldn't rest if you know so much of the world is it's unable to there's this like it feels really almost like selfish to do right. that even though I understand like I am of no value to anybody if I'm completely tapped out so like where does your understanding about that all come from like and what what how do you see rest playing into doing this kind of work thankfully there has been a lot of conversations about the the toxic messaging of capitalism and how rest is revolutionary um off the top of my head i'm thinking of the nap ministry on instagram which was founded by i want to say her name is Trisha Hershey. And I know what I know what you're talking about, but I don't know her name. Yeah. Yes, Trisha Hersey. Um, she is a black poet, performance artist, and activist. And and so she talks a lot about rest being revolutionary, especially in the context of the black community and especially black women, since they're enslavement was what built the u.s empire and so it is revolutionary for black people to rest as much as they want and i think that also extends to really all bipoc people all marginalized people all immigrants children of immigrants who are taught to work harder than their white counterparts to be considered human as as their white counterparts. And, and so I feel like I've been going through my own rest journey of validating the power of rest. And I feel like the older I get, the, the less I want to work, and mm -hmm. <laughs> the more I want to rest and hang out and do nothing and be playful and do creative things without a particular goal. And I feel like the pressure of, oh, we can't rest when other people is are suffering. I feel like that is also a subliminal white supremacist messaging where I one of the tenets of white supremacy is perfectionism. And I feel like if we are engaged in the pursuit of liberation, we also want to create a world where people can rest and give themselves permission to recharge since I think also it's a it's a brainwashing of hyper individualism because I feel like if we are not connected with others then we feel that urgency of having to do it all ourselves to the point of exhaustion but I think if we frame ourselves as being part of a greater collective net, then I think we can still feel the urgency while also trusting that people can take turns resting and being active in different cycles in whatever capacities they may have, whether they're 
single parents or have a chronic illness or are caretaking or are unemployed. I I like the idea of it being both a marathon and a relay race. We don't all have to be running full speed all the time. I think because this is going to be such a long slog, um, I think we do need to rest to keep it sustainable for ourselves and for the movement at large to allow ourselves to be supported so that once we feel fully recharged, we then have the full capacity to support others and to sort of go back and forth between those two states. Yeah, that just really made me understand it when you're like, oh, well, that's a, it's a tenant of white supremacy to make you feel like you shouldn't rest and that you should just try to achieve perfectionism. Neither of which is possible as a human being. Nobody is perfect and you cannot survive without resting. So if we are misled into thinking these are states of being to pursue, right? Like work work until you drop dead, basically. Um, try to achieve perfectionism, which is literally impossible. If we are given these goals that are impossible, then you, we are set up for failure and the system wants us to fail because then we were, we are unable to challenge the system. And it, I mean, I, it, this is giving me another layer of understanding because, um, just capitalism and com competition in like the workforce is, I see so clearly how it is a distraction to questioning the system, right? Cause you're, you're constantly being fed this like work harder, do better, climb the ladder, make more money, you know, do better than the other person. Um, and I can see how, and also then the next thing is like, and then make life so barely affordable that you get stressed if you have a major illness because you can barely afford it. So all you can do is focus on like how you're going to get through that. And, you know, all these things about the way our world is, our country rather is structured that keeps us distracted from anything beyond our individual little worlds. Just like we're everyone just kind of like trying to keep their head above water. And so I see that. And then I can see now, like if rest is demonized, systemically, um, that too is a distraction because my, so my thought has been, or my not even thought my like instinctive reaction to everything happening was like, almost like I don't deserve to sleep. Like I am American. I'm inherently complicit because I'm on stolen land, you know, like I'm part of this, like everything that I used to think that used to make me proud about being American is not really true. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, just feeling this like Western guilt. And so I just was like, almost like as a, this instinctive self punishment of, well, the least I can do is just stay on my Instagram till two in the morning and just see what's happening and try to interact with that. And then, and then like waking up at six and trying to move through my life and be with my kids and just, it just becomes a snowball of like, I don't feel good. My mind is not going to be clear. How much, how much good can I actually do being like that? 
right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. and I can see, yeah, that is also by design. It's like, oh, well, okay. So if you're going to care about issues, um, well, you need to try to be perfect in them and just give all your time to doing that. And that will inherently fail. Uh, so no real change will ever happen. So I think, right. There's kind of an element of this idea of not putting your joy or your rest or even, you know, your own needs as a priority while you do whatever you want to do in your, in your life that is supporting others. Um, that's how I'm understanding it. It seems like you're thinking a lot about your role as an artist, as a, as a writer, as, um, just like a thinker and, how you continue to create from that place of who you are while serving a, a bigger movement. Right. And I've seen you like when you're, cause you, you give, um, I think you do, you run courses and I see what you write where you're like, Oh, it feels really strange to promote this course <laughs> during this time. And how do you, and obviously I'm, you put, you do do it ultimately because you are living by this idea of you must still create and be the artist you are and put this out there. And in order to do that, that means you have to tell people, Hey, you can sign up for this thing. But like, how do you hold both? Cause it sometimes can feel contradictory. I assume that a lot of people can extend me the same grace that I would to other working artists who make a big portion of their living through online presence. I don't think there's really a script for how to be an artist, as a be a financially independent artist during an ongoing genocide. And so I think while all of this is happening, we're still living under the spectrum of capitalism and we all realistically need to be paid and to make money. And so I think, I think just extending myself the grace that I would give to other people, like, yes, there's a genocide happening. And also you have bills to pay and you have um, services and products that you need to sell to make a living as an artist. So I think those two things can we can just hold space for all of those, all of those truths at the same time. Do you think that change happens when whatever it is that we do as our living, which is necessarily part of the capitalistic machine, right? Like, but it is true. You can't, what do you, you can't just like not pay your rent because then you'll be kicked out and you won't have a roof over your head. So, but do you think that like, how do we make change then without just feeding into the system that is problematic? Is it by having these conversations, by incorporate? I feel like you do incorporate this awareness and your perspective on what's happening in the world into your artistic expression. Do you feel like you're doing that? Yeah, I think I am. Mm-hmm. So do you think that's like, so for somebody who's an artist, is that the way to effect change? Well, I feel like there are just so many levels and scopes of change that we can all be a part of. I I know um, I follow the Slow Factory. That's one account that I found to be really helpful where they give an intersectional analysis of things that's happening in the world. 
such as what's happening in Gaza. And I want to say on their account, there's a pinned post that lists out all the different roles people can play in the liberation practice. And so, for example, maybe you're not going to march in the streets, but you can amplify information or maybe you're not necessarily going to delve into the the political process of change, but you're a storyteller or maybe you're not necessarily articulate on all the different issues, but as a healer, you can provide rest and recharging for the people who are in the front lines. And so I feel like there's no right or wrong way to be part of the liberation practice. I think all roles are needed because it is an all-encompassing issue that affects everybody. So I think everybody can do something. And also I'm thinking of Adrian Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy. And one of the things that I remember from the book is that with with mass movements and critical change, it's not just about the scope of the numbers of people who are involved in a movement. It's also about a connection between two people that can run very, very deep. Um, the roots of that relationship can run very, very deep. And that's also as vital as the breadth and scope of what's happening. So, and, and then also I think of the Grace Lee Boggs quote where she says, we don't need a critical mass. We need critical connections. And so I think about that a lot as well, where ultimately it's our relationships to each other that is going to save us and get us through these issues. Yeah. So this goes back to what we said at the very beginning. And we're like, it's really hard to have conversations that just aren't real. And, you know, like to just being like, I don't want that to be something that I'm giving my energy to. And that is feed that is also then feeding my understanding of the world. And I've been feeling so much more clarity in connecting with people that we have a very similar and shared mission in this moment. And it's like, I can feel it in my body as this just pure resonance to what feels like it's so true and so real. And um, there is a real power in that in like, okay, so just like a simple example is I hated social media years ago when I had my first kid because I was following all these mom accounts, right? These like, (laughs) yeah, these like perfect, pretty much all white mothers who always had like full makeup, hair looked great. They had like a two month old baby, but they were like, looked amazing. You know, like they didn't look like they had a baby. And I was following them because I've been conditioned to kind of set myself these, these, um, idols that I could try to be like, you know, um, which firstly, I'm never going to be like some beautiful white woman, like, cause I, I'm not white. That's an, imp- that's an, that's an impossible reach, you know, right. and <laughs> years ago, my son's nine now. So like nine mm-hmm. years ago, even 
10 years ago when I was pregnant, I didn't really have the clarity about my like racial wounds being, you know, being Asian American, because I we've I've just believed the whole like, oh, no, everyone is equal in America. You know, I was still very much like, of course, we're all equal. Look, I got the same opportunities like Obama is president. Like there's no racism here, you know, like um, and <laughs> so I didn't really have the critical thinking ability to be like, why are you following a white mom? Obviously that's going to make you feel bad about yourself because you can never be like that on a purely physical level. But I didn't know that. But then also didn't really know that like, oh, all those big mom accounts are selling things at the end of the day. So I shouldn't really trust what they're posting. This is not indicative you know, I mean, maybe it is, but I'm pretty sure for the most part, like this perfect picture they're showing you is not indicative of their actual moment to moment life as a mother. Um, and then so I'm seeing all this stuff that I am not and could never be. And then I'm living my reality, which is totally different and feeling terrible about myself in the process. Right. Like being like, oh, I'm failing at being a mom because I don't look like what I'm seeing in those pictures and all this stuff. And so social media was this like place that made me just hate myself, reject myself and, and keep trying to force myself to be something that I could never be. Um, and I would demonize social media for that. I'm like, oh, Instagram sucks. And, and I left it for a couple of years and I've come back to it in the last couple of years. Um, but still only, it wasn't only until the last two months that I finally realized like, oh, wait, I control at least to a large extent what I take in on Instagram. Like, why am I following these accounts that I disagree with or that make me feel bad about myself? And, you know, it was, so it was just like, un, up until that point, though, it was like letting in all this negative or just influences that I don't need and that I that don't help who I am as a human being. Um, I was like letting that into my psyche and that felt bad. <laughs> like that it was confusing too. Like it was just like, uh, it just was really not the right way to use it. But I do feel like now I use it in a really different way because it's like now I don't have time for BS basically, you know, like, I don't have time to be like, oh, uh, you're this person's going to see one day that I unfollowed them. And I, I used to work with them five years ago, but I disagree with every it's like I disagree with everything they put out there. But, you know, and finally, I'm just like now I'm like, oh, I don't know. And it's been so it feels so good. It's like, oh, it's like finding my my people. Yeah. And um, in this online space and mm -hmm. what you're saying about you keep going back to this idea of the collective community, whether it's one-on-one, -on -one, the relationships we have, or just being able to trust that other people in the movement are doing the work while you're resting. It's this, it's this going, and this goes against American ideals of individualism, right? So like, um, and that is revolutionary in and of itself being like, no, I'm going to build community where maybe like in, in a new way, like connecting with people that don't live in your, that aren't in your immediate, like day-to-day -day life, right? Cause you're not, not everyone who's your neighbor or 
coworker or whatever is necessarily going to be your people, but finding a way to like connect with your people and then trusting that we are all in the shared purpose um, and building relationships more specific, personal, direct relationships within that kind of community, collective sort of effort. Uh, that's, it's very exciting because then you feel like you're, oh, wait, we're lifting each other up. Yeah. We're helping each other. And, and also I think the purpose is everyone's freedom, right? Which is such an amazing thing to yes. work towards. Mm -hmm. But what I think a lot of people, I don't know that everyone understands what that means. This idea of collective liberation, like, what does that, what does that mean to you? Like, why is that what's happening right now? Like, why is this not just about a specific place that's going through genocide and crisis? Like, why is that not why is it not true that it's only about them? I think we are all, many of us are starting to realize that, you know, also going back to people with colonized backgrounds, seeing echoes of the past in the present. I think also in the present timeline, when people see what is happening in Gaza, then you know, now there's more greater awareness of what's happening in Congo, what's happening in Sudan, and colonized people across the globe uniting in solidarity with one another. And so, and then also seeing how oppressors collaborate. And and then I think the the other side of the coin is the oppressed collaborate. And so I feel like the patterns are the same. Um, they all echo and reverberate with each other. Like, for example, the the police in the U.S. being trained in Israel. Um, and then also I'm thinking of the Ferguson protests when the tear gas used on the protesters are made in the U.S. and the same tear gas that was used in Gaza. And so protesters in Gaza telling protesters in Ferguson, oh, these are the ways to mitigate the effects of the tear gas. And, and so I feel like because oppression is an interconnected web that extends all over the globe, I think, and also because of social media, people are just becoming more and more collectively aware of the fact that when you tug at one thread of oppression, you then see the greater thread, the greater web that it's all connected to. Um, I'm also reminded of how Greta Thunberg, she started out as being a huge climate activist. And I think recently she said, you know, I'm actually against imperialism and <laughs> capitalism because I think with every activist, once you start digging into an issue, whether it's houselessness or uh, racial inequity or really anything, any issue, it all sort of goes back to capitalism and imperialism and all of that. So <laughs> I think um, it, all, it all leads to the same root problem. And I think we're all collectively especially those with Western privilege. I think many of us are 
really seeing the undeniable truth of that. Yeah. And I think it makes sense in a way as to why like the climate fight has been so impossible to really make any big change because you're trying, it's, it's, you're, you're trying to get at something just from like way up here when the root of roots of it are like way down here. And so whatever you're trying to do here, like mm-hmm. recycling programs or like, you know, whatever the, the things where people are trying to do to effect change when it comes to climate change is not moving the marker because the issue and the force of that issue is so much deeper. Um, do you think there is healing right. happening? Like is, are we, as we are, standing in this fight and being willing to see Mm -hmm. the truth and then doing whatever we feel called to do. Is there healing happening? You think? I think so. I feel like when we wake up from illusions, it's painful. And I think there is a grief of the loss of innocence of the worldview that you had before but I feel like every single time the closer you get to the truth of the matter Mm. you are ultimately healed and I think a lot of us waking up to the bs that is the rat race of capitalism I think yes it is painful to realize all the years you spent pursuing this made-up goal but I think it is healing to ultimately to be brought into alignment with yourself. Because I think as humans, ultimately, we're all meant to be connected with each other and to support and ground and liberate each other. And I think because we are releasing what no longer serves us, we then can feel more, more aligned with our true purpose, which I think ultimately goes to towards service, being in service of others. Yeah, this is what I mean. Like, it's kind of, again, a dumb example of social media and unfollowing people that don't serve us. Um, But the clarity, it's like a rush of clarity that comes when you remove these distractions or, you Mm -hmm. know, like these things that are pointing at the wrong stuff and making me worry about the you know, things that don't matter, you get rid of that. And even as you're like, I'm sitting with horrific images or the just horrific reality, there is something about being connected to what's real and what's true. Right. That, yeah. Cause it's me, I guess it's the saying of like, the truth will set you free. Um, mm-hmm nobody said the truth was going to be all like happy go lucky. <laughs> like it's not, right. a matter of, you know, it's not a matter of like, everything's positive. That's the truth. Um, even though that's another thing we've been brainwashed to try to go for, right. Always be happy. How do you achieve happiness? Mm-hmm. And, um, it's so f- interesting to see. I think once you spot these lies, all the other lies are easier to see. Oh, absolutely. Right. Like I I used to be, you know, like, you know, if you ever meet somebody that sort of makes you feel like maybe they're not trustworthy or there's something Mm -hmm. off, I would always blame myself for being like 
a judgmental person. Like, why am I thinking something bad about this person? You know, um, mm-hmm. but then like years will pass and then things happen that just confirm my original feeling of like alarm, like, Hey, maybe, maybe don't let that person into your orbit. And it's now the more I'm like, Oh wait, I think that's my like inner voice or this inner wisdom that's trying to tell me something that my, my more like human brain can't see right away because our brains also rationalize everything, right? We're so good at just like rationalizing, Mm -hmm. rationalizing, like the whole concept of like, oh, well, of course there's tragedy in war. There's civilian loss in war. That's just how it is. That's just a rationalization like that prevents us from thinking more deeply about any of the problems. Um, So like the more I am allowing myself to believe what I'm, being told from within, um, the clearer I feel like I'm able to just see like, and it's, it becomes faster. This like, Oh wait, I see the BS or I'm just not going to trust that person. Um, there's a less questioning. I'm not questioning my inner voice as much. Um, and I think that's been one of the ways that this whole idea of we're not saving Palestine, Palestine is saving us. Com- mm-hmm. Like that's for me, like how I saw somebody, I can't remember who posted this, but somebody is like, tell me one of the ways that Palestine is saving you. And, you know, people were like commenting and I feel like for me personally, it's freeing me from not trusting my, my like inner compass. Yeah. yeah. What do you have something like, is there, I mean, I think it's so much of it you've already touched upon with everything that you are doing. Um, but is there a specific way that that means something to you about Palestine freeing you? Yeah, I feel like the the lies of U.S. imperialism and also the illusion of free speech and democracy, <laughs> where I think we are seeing... I know for myself, I've never seen this level of censorship in my lifetime. And I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And this feels like the after effects of 9-11 times 100. And so I feel like being in support of Palestine, it reveals all the cracks in the so-called institution of free speech, the so-called institution of of democracy, where our voted representatives are blatantly ignoring the, the mass calls for ceasefire, where anonymous White House interns and staff are saying, you know, the the Congress people, the Senate, they're just ignoring the calls. And and also how the majority of the US public, they want a ceasefire, but the Biden administration is ignoring that and how among many voted, many voted um, officials, they can't even say the word ceasefire. And so I think Palestine, Palestinians, they're exposing the cracks in what we thought we had and also revealing, as we talked about earlier, the interconnected web of oppressors collaborating in pursuit of power and profit and how we are all just um, suckers (laughs) for believing that, oh, the U.S. has some kind of moral compass 
in the world. And like you said, once you spot one lie, the lies just keep snowballing and accumulating, like seeing how in the United Nations, the U.S. keeps vetoing this the call for ceasefire or the call for Palestinian sovereignty. And also to just see how the rest of the world sees how obvious the moral choice is to call for ceasefire, but the U.S. doesn't, I think... I know for myself, I think the last 79 days, I think it is like almost 80 days at this point, I think I realized how, even though I was becoming aware with this last decade with Black Lives Matter and COVID and also the anti-Asian hate crimes, I realized I still held on to this like tiny kernel of naivete of, well, the U.S., it's still a free country, a free democratic country (laughs) Um, that is, like, good somehow, even though it was built on the genocide of Native Americans and also the human trafficking of, of Black people. And I realized that, oh, I did still have this internalized conditioning from years and years of saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag every day of oh my, my education, God, which is, is so messed up when you think about it. Like That what? is so like a brainwashing. It is. It? I've never is. even stopped to think about the Pledge of Allegiance, but how you stand up in the morning every day and you say this. Oh my God. That just gave me like chills and like the creepiest <laughs> way of like. I know, right? It's, wow. it's um it's 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 wild. But. Well, I think you know. I think about North Korea and um, how. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, I know that I have blood relatives in North Korea because that's mm-hmm. where my maternal grandfather was born, and mm-hmm. um, and he was in his I think mid mid or late twenties when um the koreas were divided and he was yeah. in south korea and he never got to go back to north korea and mm. he all, lost all his family there except for my grandmother like they were already together um mm-hmm. but he lost everybody else and so i'm like i imagine what my blood relatives who are probably you know in they i probably have blood relatives there so i imagine like what are they yeah exposed to growing up like what are their lives like and it's very it's so heartbreaking and kind of impossible to process and it's like oh man they're so brainwashed they're so brainwashed to like only love their government and hate others and I'm like wait isn't that what happens to us as Americans (laughs) right (laughs) exactly (laughs) oh like wait like isn't it the same you know and yeah um, I don't yeah it's been like a real shattering of any illusions in that way but I mean do you still the fact that we all like so many of us are fighting against and like fighting against the illusion and fighting for actual liberation like that must mean you have hope I yeah I would say so um I want I read I've been reading a book of abolitionist writing, um, Marianne Kaba. She had a book recently come out called We Do This Till We Free Us. And so she said, hope is a discipline. And I've been thinking about that a lot where 
the Palestinian struggle is showing us that with the Palestinians in Gaza, they have no choice but to continue surviving and believing in a free Palestine. And and so they don't even have the privilege to to take a pause in despair. And so and then also I feel like to to not believe in a greater change, I feel like that's kind of a cop out because then you could just throw your hands up and be like, well, we're all screwed. So I don't have to do anything. I can sort of absolve myself of the effort to question myself, question my relationships, question the society that I'm in. And so I, yeah, I do have hope. And also I just don't want to take the easy way out and assume that nothing's going to change. I feel like that also does a great disservice to the activists and artists and thinkers who came before us who believed in something better for the collective. And and also I feel like to assume things are going to stay the same as artists and creative people, that's just boring. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. like why not imagine a, a radical, beautiful, amazing, abundant future where everyone is liberated and everybody has their needs met. That just sounds like more fun um, for the lack of a better word. So why not work towards that? And it's really the essence of an artist's work is you're creating something that um, doesn't exist yet, right? right? Like you're, exactly. you as an individual are taking your thoughts, your talents, your viewpoint, and you are creating whatever it is, whether you're like paint, like creating a sculpture or you're writing a book or whatever you are, you are creating, you are making that, which in and of itself is radical work because it's not just, you're, you're putting something into existence that it wasn't yet in existence. Right. So it's already challenging. Like, okay, I see the way the world is like this, and I'm going to add this into it. All I'm right. going to add my, mm -hmm. my whatever artistic contribution. So I feel like as an artist, that is the essence of like what, how, what, me, what matters to you, right? That's like what you, um, how could you not do that really is, yeah, is my, exactly. my point, right? And also Adrienne um, Marie Brown, she said once, and I'm paraphrasing her, she said, all social justice is speculative fiction because we're working towards a future that doesn't exist or we're creating and writing the future that doesn't exist yet. And so we're all I part think of this is what like, yeah. Oh, I was just going to quickly say we're all collectively co-writing the speculative fiction. That is the better future for us. Yeah. I was just going to say, that's like what um, sort of the uh, spiritual or wellness people say, I mean, when they say like, we are all co-creating the the world right you were all in co-creation mm -hmm. of like the actual world we're seeing which you know hearing that through the years I was like oh that's a really lovely statement but what does that mean um, <laughs> you know like wait but I'm not creating but I I and like it just seems there's a lot of sayings like that like oh you create your own reality you can manifest your own reality like all that kind of thought which sounded sort of I don't know um 
a little bit just like trendy, new agey, whatever. But I, I hear the truth in that now, which is that, yeah, we are working together to push towards what at this point is only an imagined future. But like, if all of us are moving towards that, like it can become a reality. Absolutely. Oh man, this has been such a good conversation. I know I've taken up so much of your time. Um, oh no, this was but... wonderful. I I think I'm reminded how revitalizing these conversations are that goes beyond how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like let's absolutely. just get to the deep stuff, like the colonization of our ancestors and the well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I feel like also then, like in this moment, you and I one on one are having this conversation, but like putting it on in like a po- a podcast format, it invites a community to join. Absolutely, you know, and mm-hmm. like I feel like there's so much that cannot be expressed or like shared in a post, you know, like in absolutely. A, um, and, and, and even just like catching up with someone, it, there's so many social norms and expectations that if I'm going to catch up with someone in like over coffee, and even if we have the same views, I don't know, like it's, there's something really powerful to such a pointed conversation where, um, we are bringing in who we are just as individuals and people and what, what is meaningful to us, but in a way that is, is in service of the collective and of our humanity. I just feel like, I don't know, it just feels so important. And I'm, I'm so glad that you agreed to have this conversation. Oh with me. yeah. I'm so glad you invited so me. This was, this was much needed. Yeah. Um, so I know you've written a bunch of books, right? Yes. Like mm-hmm. you've been, do you have more, are you working on anything in the near future? Like, is there anything that we should look out for of your work coming up? Yeah. So I'm really excited to say I'm coming out with my first illustrated affirmation card deck that I also wrote to text for. And that is going to come out, I want to say in fall of 2024. So keep an eye out for that. And also um, earlier this summer, I released a reprint with expanded material of an older uh, book title that went out of print. So I had the opportunity to basically do a big redo on it. And so that is called There Is No Right Way to Meditate. And that is out in bookstores and online places where you can order books. I love it. Isn't it weird? Like you have this, you're working on this project and you're like, oh, look out for it in fall 2024. Like, does that feel so far away? <laughs> like the public, the publishing timeline is so long, right? right? It's just, I mean, like you have been working on something and then like two, three more years later is when the rest of us get to see it. Yeah. I mean, yes and no, it feels far away in the moment, but I also know that time is just going to fly by really quickly and it'll be fall 2024 before I know it. So I also know that's so it true. We'll be it will be there before we know it. <laughs> That's so true too. Oh man. Thanks so much, Yumi. This has been, this has been so soul nourishing and, um, 
Yeah, I think it'll be such a good conversation to put out there. And I know your followers are going to love hearing more in depth, like your perspective on things. Um, And I think this is what great artists, why people have always loved following great artists and, and, and incorporating art into their life is like, it, it teaches us how to be who we are in this moment, but like reach for more, like to do more. And, um, and like the message of creating and hope through it all is really, and rest, um, is, is really needed because otherwise we will lose ourselves, you know, if we don't, if we don't hold on to all that. So thank you. Thank you. Leah. <laughs> um, I'll be in touch on, on email, um, ahead of when this will go live, okay, it'll be great. sometime in January Sounds and good. it'd be great to have like one or two photos. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll probably ask for one or two photos just to like market it. And, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that'll be great. I'm so excited to put it out there. So yeah, I'm excited to share it with my followers. Yay. Yay. Um, are you on holiday now? Like, do you actually have some, are you, I mean, I, I'm wet when you're in, when you're an artist, like you're always working, right? You're always, no. you're always creating and doing stuff. <laughs> are you are you giving yourself some oh, yeah. kind of downtime? I, I'm I have like maybe one series of edits I have to do for my affirmation card deck, but other than that, I'm basically planning on being not in work mode until end of January. So, yeah, I, I love carving out seasons of rest I think that's so important it is important like what is this like oh I'll just take off like like a few days one time a year or yeah something. I think it's, that's inhumane I it's so ridiculous it's ridiculous yeah I mean even the five-day work week for people who are in like nine to fives or even worse like nine to nines or whatever it's just this idea that you just shut off for Saturday and Sunday, and that's enough to recuperate. Like that is doesn't all it doesn't make, make sense, sense either. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like the first day, you're just like probably mentally totally tapped out. And maybe the second day you start to have more energy to do things, but then you're dreading having to go back to your job the right. next day. So it's this constant, like you never actually replenish yourself. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. Fighting the depletion. I'm seeing how important that is, like Mm -hmm. just to, and how revolutionary that is. I love that idea. Yeah. All right, Yumi, thank you. Have a good, have a good rest of your day. And I'll be in touch soon. Great. It's so wonderful to meet you. Bye. You too. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Voices on the Side. I know that you have so many podcasts to choose from and there's so much going on in everyone's lives. So it really means a lot to have your support. If you can take a couple extra moments to subscribe and rate and maybe even drop us a review, it would help us so much to get this fledgling podcast out into the world. Take good care and see you soon.